Hello, everyone. My name is Patty Seaburn, and I'm, I'm president, actually, of Temple Bat Yam. So on behalf of the Board of Trustees and of my congregation, welcome. Um, welcome to the Community Scholars Program. We're so happy you guys are here. We're always so happy that you're here. Uh, and um, thank you for being here and for bringing luminaries um, such as uh, Rabbi Mintz to our, to our campus. So I'm going to um, go sit and listen, but I'd like to introduce um, your leader, and, uh, Ari Katz. Welcome. I know it's the uh, dog days of summer, and we've actually had beautiful weather finally. No humidity, so I thank you for coming out and taking time to um, spend an hour or so with our 16th annual Summer Scholar, Rabbi uh, Adam Mintz. Um, tonight is actually, we had a kind of introductory lecture yesterday at lunch about Eastern European Jewry and America. Tonight we start our three-part series about the institutions that trained the rabbis in America, the three main institutions. There are now more than three. Um, but uh, the classic, the older institutions, um, including HUC, Hebrew Union College, JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary, and uh, Yeshiva University. So before we uh, start our lecture, I do want to thank you all. I want to thank all of our donors for supporting CSP. As many of you know, this is our 17th year, and um, we are only able to bring, uh, bring great speakers here because of you. We appreciate the annual contribution from the Jewish Federation Family Services and, and the um, Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County, but that is a fraction of our very small budget. So if you haven't had a chance to support CSP, please do so this year as we go in and celebrate number 17. I also want to mention a few upcoming programs um, that may be of interest. We have handouts there. If you're not on our uh, constant contact email list, please make sure we have your name and email and we'll take care of that. But we have our 16th annual pre-high holiday program coming up September 10th, hosted by Temple Beth Shalom. And we're very happy to have Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz with us. Uh, his topic is This Rosh Hashanah Cultivating Moral Courage. He's been named by Forward, the Forward as one of the most influential and inspirational rabbis in all of America. And I hope you will come out and um, get to meet him and enjoy his presentation that will get you all ready for the holidays, which are just around the corner. We also have uh, on October 10th, Professor Lawrence Barron returns to CSP for a uh, multimedia brown bag lunch program entitled The Wandering View, The Jewish Immigrant in World Cinema. Finally, November 5th, uh, which is a Sunday, I believe, uh, Rabbi Mark Glickman comes back to Orange County. I think his father's hiding somewhere over there uh, to talk about his first book, Sacred Treasure, The Amazing Discoveries of Forgotten Jewish History. We have, uh, where's Rabbi Larry Seidman? He's going to talk about the Geniza that you were hanging out uh, next to just a few months ago, I guess, when, when you were there. Um, we do have, uh, in the last few years, we've developed our own series of CSP hats, and each year there's a new color. This gentleman is wearing one right there. You're sporting a nice new CSP hat. Um, if you are a supporter of CSP and would like to get a hat, please um, see me after the program. We have two colors this year. However, the deal is you've got to wear it somewhere unusual. Rochelle wore it in a place I can't pronounce. Where was it? Haraguay? Haidaguay? Anybody know where that is? Yeah, neither do I. It's not Paraguay, which I thought. It's Haidaguay, which is actually north. It's a spectacular area, I'm going to say, in Canada, um, which, um, in which she went on National Geographic tour to see some incredible um, Native American uh, burial totems. That's right. Um, Rabbi Seidman wore his hat outside the Cairo Geniza. The most unusual place our hat has shown up is outside the main mosque in Islamabad, Pakistan. So I challenge you, take a hat. You can go somewhere exotic or somewhere fun and local. Please take a moment and uh, turn off your cell phones so we don't capture your phone ringing in the middle of this program. We are uh, recording. We have Grendel over there. For those of you who don't know, we have our own podcast on iTunes. We have over 200 programs that we recorded over the years. And if this is your first CSP program, you can go home and listen for the next few months and catch up. Um, we also have a, a special program tomorrow. Rabbi Mintz is married to another scholar, um, Sharon Lieberman Mintz. And um, tomorrow we are having a uh, program at a private corporation in the Newport, Irvine area. And the topic is the art and history of decorated ketubot. 
um, at 12.15 to 1.15. I hope you will join us. We have space for about maybe six or seven more people. So if you want to come to the event, I know the Browers just signed up. See me right after the program or email me and join us and learn about Illuminated Ketubot, the art and the history. Okay, today's topic. Oh, let me introduce you who we have. Rabbi Mintz, this is a long sentence, but I'm going to read the whole thing because you wrote it, uh, is a modern Orthodox rabbi in New York City who believes that the greatest challenge facing 21st century Jewry is the creation of educated Jews who understand that the key to the Jewish future is the appreciation of the Jewish past. Toward this goal, Rabbi Mintz teaches Jewish history, law, and thought in a variety of venues. He's an adjunct associate professor of Jewish studies at City College of New York. Do we have any City College of New York graduates here? Yeah, you never know sometimes. We drove by it on our tour, so I got to see it. You went there, Murray? By the way, this is Murray over there. Murray grew up in Brownsville selling bananas out of a banana cart. So he's got some good stories to share. Um, so um, Rabbi Mintz is an adjunct associate professor of Jewish studies, as I mentioned, at City College, um, and a member of the Talmud faculty, Yeshivat Maharat. Those of you who were with us in New York got to visit Maharat, and maybe he'll mention it, maybe not. He's the rabbi and founder of Kilat Reim Aovim, a modern Orthodox synagogue in Manhattan. His door is open. Anybody coming to New York can come and hang out with Rabbi Mintz on a Shabbos morning. Do you have Kiddush? They have a great Kiddush. What? Delicious Kiddush. Is it Fleshik or Milchik? Meat Kiddush. You come, you just say, Rabbi Mintz sent you. He will welcome you. He will take care of you. Where is your show located in the Upper West Side? 72nd between West End and Broadway, so that means you're in that area with all the shoals. There's like shoals everywhere. There's the, we, we, the Karlbach shoals around there. We compete based on Kiddush. We have the best Kiddush. You have the best Kiddush. Okay, you just, you, because you've come here tonight, you get one free Kiddush. You go take care of it. Okay, so our topic for tonight, and, and we chose this location for a reason, because this is a, one of the, well, I don't want to, this is, the oldest reformed temple in Orange County. Is that right, Browers? Okay, fine. One of the oldest and biggest and most influential reformed synagogues and temples in Orange County. Can I say that? Thank you. Best, I can't say that. Thank you, Yana. They have good people everywhere. You know that. Okay, the topic tonight is the first and the oldest Jewish seminary in America, Hebrew Union College, relates to this institution, anybody who prays here, and it relates to all of us as American Jews, as you will find out shortly. With that, join me in welcoming Rabbi Adam Mintz, tonight's program, first of three. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ari. Thank you um, to everybody who came out tonight. And thank you so much to the president and to the congregation um, for welcoming us here tonight. And again, it really is wonderful to talk about the history of Hebrew Union College, the history of the reform movement right here in this important reform congregation. And hopefully we'll be able to bring some context, some background, some history, and some meaning to this congregation, to the reform movement, and specifically to the reform rabbinate. Let's start even before the very beginning. In 1825, there were 5,000 Jews in the United States. There were no ordained rabbis in the United States. No self-respecting rabbi wanted to be a rabbi in the United States. If you were a rabbi, you wanted to have a real job. And that real job probably found you a congregation somewhere in Western Europe. By 1875, there were 250,000 Jews in the United States. So in the 50 years between 1825 and 1875, 245,000 Jews move here to the United States. Most of those Jews come from Germany or from other Central European countries, such as France, England, and Hungary. Now, why did they come? Well, they came because there was economic opportunity here in the United States. They came because there was some persecution of Jews in Europe, even in Western Europe. And they came, sometimes the explanation is just the simplest. 
because the 1850s saw the invention of the steamship. So all of a sudden, you were able to cross the Atlantic without you using what? A rowboat, without rowing your way across the Atlantic. And therefore, it was safer, it was easier, and all of a sudden, the United States, which had been inaccessible before then, all of a sudden was accessible to the people. And all of these Jews came. Now, with that, with 250,000 Jews, now we need some rabbis. Or now rabbis are going to feel that this is a place to serve a community. And interestingly, and this we'll talk more about tomorrow evening and Thursday evening, interestingly, most of the Jews who came here before 1875 were Reform Jews. Just one minute on the history of the Reform Movement. The Reform Movement begins in Germany around the year 1810. The Reform Movement was an attempt to reform or to modernize Judaism, which the Jews whom had just received citizenship in Germany around the year 1800, they felt that Judaism, that the Orthodox synagogue, was really very much medieval. It was noisy, it was dirty, it wasn't decorous, it wasn't nice looking, it wasn't beautiful. And therefore they wanted to make a synagogue that looked beautiful and that was dignified as they believed a religious service should be. This led first to changes to reform in the service and then reforms in the lives of the Jews, such as changes in the laws of kosher and changes in the laws of supervision and changes in the laws of men covering their head. And that was the beginning of the reform movement. Now, American reform, if you see, if, if the reform movement is, is modernizing Judaism, so obviously in Germany, it's going to have a German flavor. And in America, it's going to have a more American flavor. Well, the first reform congregation in America is, fa is in Baltimore in 1842. In 1845, Temple Emmanuel in, um, on Fifth Avenue in New York becomes the next important reform congregation and um, you know, becomes kind of the, the mothership for the reform movement. But reform movement doesn't only need synagogues, temples, they also need leaders. Who is the leader of the reform movement? And for that, I wanna just take a minute to look at the biography of Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise. Rabbi Wise is born in Bohemia in 1819. As most Orthodox, sorry, as most Reform rabbis during that period, Rabbi Wise grows up as an Orthodox Jew, and he studies in a traditional yeshiva near Prague. He receives only a meager university education, translates in the fact that he doesn't even graduate university. But while he's studying in university in Vienna, he's introduced to the reform movement. Now he comes from a very simple family. His father is a school teacher. But he's introduced to the reform movement and becomes involved with the reform movement. In 1846, he decides to move to America. He's elected rabbi of Congregation Beth El in Albany in 1846. And he has four very turbulent years in Congregation Beth El. This is a fascinating story in itself. He introduces the first mixed choir in the history of American synagogues. Now, what does that mean? It means so many different things now, mixed choir. In those days, it meant men and women together. They never had women singing in the choir. So he introduced a mixed choir. He introduced German and English 
hymns or psalms to be recited means he replaced some of the Hebrew with German and English. And he eliminated two things that he felt were inappropriate with the Orthodox service. One is what they call piyutim. Those are the prayers that are mumbled in an Orthodox congregation. He didn't like mumbling. He thought mumbling was just an excuse to talk to your neighbor. And therefore, all mumbles were out in Congregation Bethel. The second thing that he eliminated was the sale of honors. You see, in those days, still today in some places, but in those days in all synagogues, the way that the synagogue used to make money is they used to sell honors. Whether it was open up the, opening up the ark or being called to the Torah, it cost a certain amount of money. And you know what they used to do just in case people didn't volunteer on their own? What they used to do was they used to auction off these honors. He thought that was terrible. And he eliminated the sale of honors. But other than that, the synagogue was orthodox, was traditional. There was a separation between men and women. There was a mechitza, a separation. And the service was traditional. So much so that Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise threatened one of the officers that if he didn't close his business on Shabbat, he would not be allowed to continue to be an officer in the congregation. Well, this confusing message of Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise didn't go very didn't didn't go go along very well in Albany. And on Rosh Hashanah in 1850, in a scene that was described in the newspaper in Albany the next day, on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, as the rabbi and the president stood up as they opened up the ark to take out the Torah, the rabbi and the president got into an altercation and the president knocked off the rabbi's top hat. At which point, a riot broke out in the synagogue and the police needed to come. But don't feel badly for Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise because by the next day, by the second day of Rosh Hashanah, he had already created a breakaway synagogue down the road. Now, that breakaway synagogue was also fascinating because that breakaway synagogue was the first synagogue in American Jewish history that had mixed pews, which basically means that the men and the women sat together. Now, I don't know if this is in the official history books, but I'll tell you that the reason there were mixed pews in this breakaway synagogue of Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise was not for an ideological reason. It was very practical. He didn't have a synagogue building. It was kind of a makeshift synagogue building that was created, um, that was created for him. They didn't have a mechitza. They didn't have a divider to go between the men and the women section. So therefore, the men and the women sat together, and all of a sudden, that became the standard for the reform congregations. He managed there for four years, but then again, he wasn't satisfied. He wanted to go bigger and better. And therefore, in 1854, Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise is, is selected as the rabbi of the B'nai Yeshurun Synagogue in Cincinnati. Now, a word about Cincinnati. In the 1850s, Cincinnati is the largest city west of the Alleghenies. It's the sixth largest city in the United States. Why is that, everybody? because business was done on the Great Lakes, and therefore Cincinnati was very well situated, and manufacturing was in Cincinnati, and business was in Cincinnati, so Cincinnati was a large city, 
an a wealthy city and therefore an extremely important city. There were, <coughs> sorry, 2,500 Jews in Cincinnati at the time. It was a large and influential Jewish city. And Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise wants to be the rabbi. Now, Isaac Mayer Wise in 1855 opens something that he calls Zion College in Cincinnati. It's kind of an after-school college program in which he wants to educate Jews. It's kind of the beginning of a rabbinical school before he even could imagine creating a rabbinical school. He opens up the Zion College. You're probably not surprised to hear that he had only a handful of students and, li and it limited financial support. They, people just weren't convinced that this kind of school was going to amount to anything. And in 1857, there was a crash, there was an economic crash. Whatever financial support he has stops and the school closes. But at least the idea of creating a, a school, a Jewish college, somehow stuck with him and stuck with the Jewish leaders in Cincinnati. Towards the end of 1870, Henry Adler, a wealthy Jew from a place called Lawrenceburg, Indiana, pledged to give Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise $10,000 towards the establishment of a rabbinical seminary. $10,000. That was enough money to start the seminary. In 1872, Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise calls a conference of congregations, 72 congregations, to raise money to create this rabbinical seminary. Now, again, just a word about rabbinical conferences. You know, in the pre-email era, and obviously the pre-video conferencing era, it was hard to get everybody together. And it was important to get everybody together to let everybody know what was happening, but also to get everybody energized. So these rabbinical conferences were very, very important. So if we really wanted to say when Hebrew Union College was founded, I would suggest that it was founded at this conference of 72 synagogues that took place in 1872. Now, things never go smoothly in these things. In the fall of 1875, there was another financial crisis in the United States. And therefore, it took a couple more years before the seminary actually opens. But I want to read the first page in the handouts. Is a description by Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise of this seminary. The Hebrew Union College, locate, located sorry, in Cincinnati, 494 West 6th Street, was established in 1846 by the Union of American Hebrew Congregations. It wasn't exactly established in 1846. It was established in 1872, but he goes back to when he came to Cincinnati. A majority of all Hebrew congregations in this country, including the largest, are members of this union and contribute to it one dollar annually for each member. The union elects in its biannual conventions a board of directors who govern the university in all affairs not left to the faculty. This is also interesting. A majority of all Hebrew congregations in this country. In 1850, most Jews in America are Reformed Jews. And therefore, he doesn't say this is going to be a reform rabbinical school. What he says is this is going to be a rabbinical school of the majority of the congregations in America. He wants his school to be the American rabbinical seminary, in a sense, non-denominational. Well, in a sense, non-denominational, in a sense, reform, because that was the default. But he doesn't identify it as being reformed. The faculty elected by the Board of Examiners consists of the following gentlemen. 
Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise, President and Professor of Hebrew Literature and History, Reverend Dr. Meltzner, Professor of the Talmud and Rabbinic Jurisprudence, Salman Eppinger, Esquire, Presbyter of the Talmud and Professor of Exegesis part-time, Ignatius Mueller, assistant in Hebrew, Henry Berkowitz, assistant in, he in history, two of the teachers, Reverend Dr. Michael Lilienthal and Louis Afrecht, died this year and no successors have been appointed yet. Now, what do you notice here in the professors? What I notice is there's only one doctor and there's only one rabbi. Reverend was probably a title given to someone who ran a congregation but who didn't actually have ordination. Now that's not so surprising because there was no rabbinical school in America to give ordination. So there were a couple of reverends, a couple of esquires, a couple of lawyers, one rabbi, Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise, who had received his ordination in, um, in Vienna. And this is the, um, and you see there was hard, by the way, to replace teachers, because two who had died, no successors had been appointed. And now we get to what I think is the most interesting. The session extends from the first Monday of September to the last week in June, annually, from 3 to 6 p.m. daily, except Sunday, with liturgical exercises every Saturday afternoon. It's an after-school program. Or to be more specific, it's an after-college program. Most of, the, most of the students, we'll talk about the students in a minute, most of the students went to the University of Cincinnati during the day, and they came to the rabbinical school in the afternoon. Notice that there was school on, on Saturday afternoon, on Shabbat afternoon. There are registered this year 42 students, one female, all Jews, although the law of the college excludes no one on account of their religious confessions. The college is perfectly free. No fees whatsoever are exacted. All textbooks are furnished, are furnished gratuitously to the students, and the indigent are furnished with all the common necessaries of life. The library in the college building of about 8,000 volumes comprises the principal works of the Hebrew literature, biblical, rabbinical, historical, philosophical, poetical, together with Syriac, Arabic, and other Semitic works, lexica, grammars, etc., and a fair selection of English, German, French, Italian, and other works. It is at the disposal of the students and teachers and of all outsiders who seek information. The <coughs> library of the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati is still one of the two or three most important Jewish libraries in the country, and it is still open to all outsiders who seek information. The college is divided into two departments, preparatory and collegiate. One of its preparatory departments is in New York City, under the superintendency of Reverend Dr. Gottile. The pupils of the preparatory departments must be graduates Grad, uh, um, graduates or students of the Cincinnati High School or any similar institute must know some Hebrew and Bible history to be registered. The curriculum of this department is this. Listen to this. So they took high school students to prepare them to enter the, um, to enter the rabbinical school. They had one division in Cincinnati and one division in New York, understanding that there were going to be some good students in New York who, if they, who they prepared them during high school, would then travel to Cincinnati. First year. Amazing. Hebrew etymology, exercises in translation from English into Hebrew, that's hard. Reading the original of one book of the Pentateuch, Joshua and Judges, two chapters with Rashi's rabbinical commentary, also two books of Mishnah, usually Avot and Sanhedrin, history from 536 to 167 BC. Just look at that for a minute. That's from 3 to 6 every, after, every day in the afternoon. That's in addition to what they're required to do in public high school. Second year, Hebrew grammar completed. Exercises continued. 
Bible reading, one book of Pentateuch, one and two Samuel, and a number of Psalms memorized. Four books of Mishnah, 20 pages of Talmud, and history from 167 to 20 B.C. Third year Aramaic grammar, Hebrew exercises continued. Bible reading, one book of the Pentateuch, one and two kings, with the Targum and Rashi to some chapters. Psalms memorized, sounds like all 150 chapters memorized. 30 pages Talmud, casuistics in the code of, of Moses Maimonides, history to 7 AC. AC, AC. Fourth year, Aramaic grammar, rabbinical dialect. Hebrew exercises continued. Bible reading, one book of the Pentateuch, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Psalms memorized, 30 pages of the Talmud, the first book with the exception of Akum in the Code by Moses Maimonides. Literary history to 20 AC. Can you imagine what you knew after you graduated from four years of this preparatory program, that is amazing. I mean, that is really solid Jewish rabbinic knowledge. And then, graduates of this department receive the degree of Bachelor of Hebrew or Haver and may enter the rabbinical or collegiate department. Students of the collegiate department are required to be graduates of students of the academic course in the Cincinnati University or a similar institution and must be graduates of the examination in the above curriculum. That's also interesting, right? They go to, um, they go to university. They have to graduate university in order to get their ordination. The collegiate department takes four years. Its curriculum comprises, besides the usual theological studies, the Hebrew and Aramaic, also the Syriac and Arabic languages. The test for graduation is, I know I could never pass this test. First, the ability to read and expound critically and historically any given passage in Bible and commentaries, Talmud and casuists, philosophers and poets of the Hebrew. Second, Sufficient knowledge of literary history, casuistics, and jurisprudence of the synagogue, the various forms of worship, and the, he and the historical development of Jewish doctrine. Third, homiletic and liturgical competency. And fourth, a university degree. He receives the degree of rabbi and may receive two years later the degree of doctor of divinity. The students of this department read, read steadily the Bible with ancient and modern paraphrases and commentaries, the Talmud with commentaries and casuists, and midrashim or homiletics. Of the Jewish metaphys metaphysicians, they read chiefly the works of Maimonides, um, Bechai, Halevi, Albo, and Sadja. In history, they follow Gretz and, and Yast, um, Zunz, Munk, um, and Dukes, Geiger, and St um, Stein, Steinschneider. Sorry. The first class of rabbis will graduate in July 1883, composed of seven students. Annually, the Union of American Hebrew Congregation appoints three commissioners to examine the classes. The most prominent rabbis of America have alternatively um, discharged this duty. Their reports published with the proceedings of the Union have been unanimously very favorable. Similar institutions exist. Two in Berlin, one in Breslau, one in Pest, and one in Paris. Besides private institutions not connected with academical um, studies, which are very numerous in Europe, especially in Hungary, Poland, and Russia. Also in Asia and Africa. I'm not sure what he has in mind in Asia and Africa. But let's just take a minute. And I took a couple of minutes to read this document because it's an amazing document. Look how ambitious Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise was in 1872. He basically provides or presents an eight-year course of study that would take place not instead of high school and instead of college, but in addition to high school and in addition to college. And he required proficiency 
and some memorization, memorization was in in those days, of biblical texts, rabbinical, rabbinic texts, philosophy, literature, Hebrew grammar. You can imagine that someone who graduated from such a class would not only be proficient, but be, what would be one of the great scholars in all of Jewish history. And you wonder, so what happened? Were the students who graduated, were they really this proficient? Is he telling you the truth when he tells you that the reports have been unanimously very favorable? Well, you know, sometimes the way to find out what happened isn't always to listen to the president or the rabbi, but sometimes it pays to see what the students have to say. And luckily, we have an amazing report on the next page from one of the students from that first class in the college. Turn the page for a minute. Here's a description by a student of what went on at the college in the beginning. I soon accommodated myself to the new life. September passed rapidly. October dawned and we boys were all keyed up to great excitement. For the Hebrew Union College was to open Sunday, the third day of that month. On that momentous day 70 years ago, we the neophytes were called for and taken to Plum Street Temple where the opening exercises were to take place. I have frequently described that great occasion. Even today, 70 years later, the memory of that great day thrills me. The brilliantly illuminated temple was crowded for the people sensed that a historic event was taking place. All the participants in that service, of course, have gone to their great beyond. We boys, numbering about 15, were seated in front pews. Dr. Weiss, having embarked on this great adventure, could not know what success it would have. To make sure that it would not be an entire failure, he prepared a number of his own scholars for entrance into the new institution. Edwin Heinscheider, Louis Marx, David Eichberg, and Fred Strasberg. These boys attended the college a few years and then dropped out. That's the first interesting thing. Question is, were there really students? Well, Rabbi, Rabbi Weiss he packed the pews that day, right? He got a few students who weren't really interested in being rabbis, but he wanted to give the impression that it was successful. Only, the four, only four of the entrants persevered until ordination. Of those four, I am the only survivor. Israel Aaron, Heron, Henry Berkowitz, Joseph Krauskopf, the other three did, did fine service. I am the last leaf on the tree planted by Isaac Mayer Wise on that October day in the long ago. The college was without funds. There was no building. The two temples, the Plum and Mound Street, offered their schoolrooms. The opening sessions were held in the Mound Street Temple. What a turn of fate. Thirteen years later, I became the rabbi of the congregation whose vestry I began my rabbinical training. The college opened with three teachers, two of these, Drs. Wise and Lilienthal, volunteering their services. And the third, Solomon Eppinger, the only paid instructor and very poorly paid at that. We attended the public high school in the morning and the college in the afternoon. And here we were talking about before. Two girls were in the opening class, one a granddaughter of the instructor, Solomon Eppinger, and the other a niece of Dr. Wise. The boys rather resented the presence of these girls. One day, one of their number hid the books of Julia Eppinger, the granddaughter of the instructor. 
When the matter came to the attention of Mr. Eppinger, he flew into a rage. He reported the matter to Dr. Wise, who threatened to dismiss the class unless the books were returned. The culprit, thoroughly frightened, managed to get the books to Julia without betraying his identity, and the matter became a closed incident. One of the students, and a very bright one at that, was Nathan Cohn of Nashville, Tennessee, who later became one of the leading Jewish citizens of Nashville. Nathan one day was rather inattentive. Mr. Eppinger asked, Cohn, what's the matter with you? Oh, Mr. Eppinger, I have the blues. Oh, you have the blues well. I will give you the blacks. And promptly he put two black marks opposite Nathan's name. This was rather serious for the boy. He enlisted the sympathy of several members of the class. We appealed to Mr. Eppinger and succeeded in, in appeasing the affronted teacher, and he removed the black marks. But our freshman class was studious. Our teachers were Dr. Weiss, who taught us Mishnah, Dr. Lilienthal, who taught us Jewish history, and Mr. Eppinger, who taught us Deuteronomy and Hebrew grammar. From these small beginnings, the Hebrew Union College grew into the great institution that it is today. Now, isn't that amazing to compare what Rabbi Rice wrote in his description of the opening of the university, the opening of the college, sorry, and what this student wrote. Seems like a different description. The student describes a school with very few students, with teachers who were basically volunteers, a couple of students who were just put in the class just to fill the, fill the seats. There was no money, there was no future. In a sense, I think, the honest description of the student gives you a more respect for Rabbi Weiss. Because it's one thing if it really happened the way he imagined it. But it didn't happen the way he imagined it. There, were, there was a lot of trouble, a lot of difficulty at the beginning. Nevertheless, he kept going. And on July 11th, 1883, these four rabbis graduated and they were ordained. At the, at the ceremony, over a hundred rabbinic and lay leaders came together for this first ordination on American soil. It was, according to Rabbi Wise, the greatest show of unity in American Jewish history. Now, there was a problem that evening of July 11th, 1883. And that is that after the ceremony in the Plum Street Synagogue, the guests were invited to a country club overlooking the city of Cincinnati. At this country club, they were feeded to a nine-course lavish banquet. You'll have to come back tomorrow night to hear all about the banquet and actually to see a menu. Let me just tell you that clams, crabs, shrimp, and frog legs were included in the menu. Meat and milk was served. Most of the rabbis picked themselves up when they saw the waiters coming in with these delicacies. And this event became known as the Trefa Banquet. The Trefa Banquet actually was important because the Trefa Banquet is what separated the reform movement from the creation of the conservative movement. So ironically, it was this banquet at the first ordination of the Hebrew Union College, the reform movement, which was more important even in the creation of the conservative movement than in the establishment of the reform movement. So tomorrow night we'll come back to that. But with that, we really complete the discussion of the founding of Hebrew Union College, the founding and the first ordination of Hebrew Union College. As you would imagine, as the only rabbinical school in America, 
and then the only reform rabbinical school in America, there, there continued to be students, though the, the, the school continued to struggle. And then something very interesting happened. Beginning in 1881, Jews began to immigrate to the United States from Eastern Europe. Between 1881 and 1924, two and a half million Jews, mostly Russian Jews, came to the United States. And these Jews were very different than the German Jews. Actually, the German Jews, the Reformed Jews, looked down on these Russian, largely Orthodox Jews. They referred to them simply as Yidden, the Yiddish word for Jew, as kind of a, a derisive term. These, the, we're fancy, you know, German-American Jews, and these Russian Jews, they're just the Yidden. The Russian Jews responded by referring to the German Jews as being the Yahudim, which is the German pronunciation of the word Yehudim, meaning Jews. And the, the tension and the struggles between them was more than just a name calling. And at this time, there was someone by the name of Stephen Wise. The story is complicated because both of the figures, both of the celebrities' names are Wise. But Stephen Wise was very different. He was born in 1874 in Budapest to a traditional family. He moves to New York City when he's 17 years old. He goes to City College, but instead of moving to Brooklyn College, he moves to Columbia College, and he, um, and he gets his, his bachelor's from Columbia College. And he wants to become a rabbi. He wants rabbinical ordination from Hebrew Union College, but he wants to stay in New York to finish his doctorate in Columbia. So he gets permission to study with tutors and to take exams. But at the last minute, he breaks away, and he receives ordination from a rabbi in Vienna. So he comes back, now with a PhD, and now with rabbinical ordination from Vienna. In those days, they thought it was fancier to be a Viennese rabbi than a Cincinnati rabbi. And he becomes a candidate for the rabbinical position at Temple Emmanuel, the largest reform congregation in the world, the most, in, 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 sorry, in, in America, on Fifth Avenue and 65th Street in New York City. And he's basically chosen for the job until he's told that he's going to have to allow the president to read his sermon before he delivers that sermon every Saturday morning. He refuses to allow the president to read his sermon, and he is immediately dismissed from the job that he never really held. But Rabbi Stephen Wise is not going to be put off by the, um, by the stuffy Jews on Fifth Avenue. He crosses Central Park, and he creates on 68th Street, just off of Central Park West, his own synagogue. He called it the Free Synagogue. It's still there. Now it's called the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue. People make a mistake. They think that the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue is called that because there was no membership. I want to tell you something. There was always membership in the Free Synagogue. Free Synagogue meant that it was free. The rabbi didn't have to show his sermon to the president. It was the Free Synagogue. And, um, and this, and Rabbi Stephen Wise, he was very important. It, it requires a whole other lecture, maybe a whole other series about the involvement of the Jews in the Second World War. Stephen Wise was very politically active and was close to President Roosevelt and was very much involved in the negotiations at the end of the Second World War to open up the borders of the United States. But that's not our topic for tonight. He, Rabbi Stephen Wise, is unhappy with HUC, Hebrew Union College, HUC. Number one, Hebrew Union College and the Reform Movement had an 
strongly anti-Zionist position. You know, they were very American, and they believed that a commitment to the Zionist ideal, especially after 1917 and the Balfour Declaration, was going to be dual loyalty. So they were anti-Zionist. And therefore, what Rabbi Stephen Wise does is he, in 1917, at his synagogue, the Free Synagogue, he establishes a rabbinic fellowship to train rabbis. He doesn't actually give them ordination, but he trains rabbinical students. By 1921, he decides to open a rabbinical school, and he calls it the Jewish Institute of Religion. Now, HUC at the time tries to prevent the opening of the Jewish Institute of Religion. But HUC wasn't very strong then either. They had only 80 students, and they were, um, and you know, they didn't really have the power or the clout to prevent the opening of this school. There were 12 applicants for the first class of the Jewish Institute of Religion, and it was billed as being committed to Zionism, social justice, and Klal Yisrael. The school opens in September 1922. Four years of study, 120 hours of classroom work, and an exam at the end. And actually, I have to tell you, eventually they introduced an exam at the end of two years to weed out the students who weren't good enough. But at least initially, they only had an exam at the end. Now, the professors, Rabbi Stephen Wise was very smart. He was in New York. So what he did was he offered the, 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 the most prominent Jewish professors in New York City positions in addition to their university positions. So therefore, one professor was Salo Barone, who was the dean of the of Jewish historians at Columbia. Harry Wolfson, who was the great Jewish philosopher and historian in Harvard, and Shalom Spiegel, who was the great Jewish, the, 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 um, the, the student or the, the professor of Jewish liturgy at the Jewish Theological Seminary. And what he said to them was, I'll work around your schedule. Today we do this all the time, but in those days that was, that was tremendous. He said, we'll work around your schedule and I'll pay you more money. And they came. So what he had was, he had the most preeminent professors teaching in his school. 1926, the first graduating class, 10 men receive rabbinical ordination. An honorary doctorate was given to Chaim Nachman Bialik. Wow, you can't beat that. But what was it all about? Again, let's go back to the sources. And I want to read just a short little source that tells you what the students at HUC thought about the students at the Jewish Institute of Religion. Look at number 38, page 28, number 38. The admissions policy of the JIR was always a butt of student jokes. Our men, meaning the HUC students, went to town especially on Hanukkah, when the evening dance was always preceded by skits. The master, bless you, the master among us was Coleman Zwitman. One skit that he staged was a scene portraying the faculty interviewing two prospective candidates. In order to judge whether they were admissible, they were weighed. Okay, making fun. The first one mounted the scales. Was it Harold Kamsler who played the role? And he registered 130 pounds. Dr. Chernovich one of the teachers reported, Bigamatriakal, the numerical value 130 is the same as the numerical value of the Hebrew word kal, meaning weak or poor, and he was rejected. The next one mounted the scales, and he weighed 202 pounds. 
Dr. Chernovich judged him. Rav Bigamatria, rabbi in numerical value. And of course, he was admitted. As the scene ended, it was revealed that the one who had been admitted was really the telephone man who had come in to answer, in answer to a complaint that the phone was out of order. They had a sense of humor in those days. So you see what happened. You have Rabbi Stephen Wise, who's unhappy with the ideology of Hebrew Union College. He founds his own school, which is kind of high on, 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 um, on marketing. They market very well. They haven't given honorary doctorate to Chaim Nachman Bialik. They have very, you know, very preeminent professors. But in terms of a school, it wasn't seen as very serious, especially by the students in Hebrew Union College. Now, what happened was that very quickly, JIR, the Jewish Institute of Religion, realized that it wasn't going to be able to exist on its own. There just weren't enough reform students, and there weren't enough, you know, there wasn't enough money. So they reached out to, he to Hebrew Union College for a merger. You see, if they can't, you know, if, if, they, if they can't beat them, they might as well join them and hope that at least they can influence them. After many, many years of back and forth, in 1950, a merger was established, maintaining schools in both Cincinnati and New York City. And today, Hebrew Union College is called, if you go on the website, Hebrew Union College slash Jewish Institute of Religion. There were schools first in Cincinnati and New York, now a school in Los, here in Los Angeles and in Jerusalem as well. And that was borne out by this kind of competition between Rabbi Stephen Wise and Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise, the establishment of the Jewish Institute of Religion and then the merging of the two. And finally, to complete the story or at least these parts of the story, I want to talk, and then we'll compare it tomorrow um, to the Jewish Theological Seminary, to the story of the ordination of women at Hebrew Union College. In the early 1920s, there was a female student at HUC. Her name was Martha Newmark. Her father served on the faculty, and he, she, she petitioned, sorry, for a right to serve a high holiday congregation. The CCAR, the Reform Rabbinical Organization, voted in her favor. A woman, they wrote, cannot be denied the privilege of ordination. However, a responsum came out of Hebrew Union College, signed by Professor Jacob Lauterbach, prohibiting women's ordination. And the final word delivered by the Hebrew Union College Board of Governors was that there will be no change at the present time. Women will not be granted ordination. At least four other women attended American rabbinical schools during the interwar years between the First and the Second World Wars but none was ordained. Just to give you a sense, the first female Protestant minister in America was ordained in 1853. The first reformed woman rabbi in Germany, Regina Jonas, 1935. In the 1960s, again, there's a call for women's ordination. Jane Evans, the head of the reformed sisterhoods, claims that there are many female heads of reform youth groups, the reform movement is going to need to ordain women. Sally Jane Presand enters Hebrew Union College in 1968. She is ordained in 1972 
and receives the first job as a woman rabbi, interestingly, at the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue. By 2000, Hebrew Union College had ordained 335 women. That's half, or now more than half, of its graduating class is women. Just to give you a sense of how historic the ordination was in 1972, the last page of the handout is an article from the New York Times. First woman rabbi in US ordained. A picture and a pretty significant article about the first woman rabbi. It's an interesting article to read. What we covered tonight was really the history of Hebrew Union College, the history of the reform rabbi. We started by talking about the founding of the school, where it came from, and how it, what it looked like at the beginning. The second snapshot we took was of the founding of the Jewish Institute of Religion, which in a way by merging with HUC kind of fine-tuned the message of HUC. And finally, we took a snapshot of the first ordination of a woman by Hebrew Union College in 1972. It's a fascinating story, but it's really, as Ari said, only the first piece of the story. Because to appreciate why Hebrew Union College was so important, the role of the reform rabbi in the history of American Judaism, we have to tomorrow night look and study and explore the history of the Jewish Theological Seminary and the conservative movement, and then finally on Thursday evening, the history of Reitz, of Yeshiva University, and the Orthodox movement. Thank you so much.